so the United States is like ec- economically collapsed, um, socially, politically. Um, they live like under martial law. There's like there's curfews and sectors and uh, the it's like a police state. And I was like, huh, this feels accurate. Like just replace. <laughs> right. you- just replace uh, electromagnetic pulse with COVID-19. And like, I feel like, yeah, this, this makes sense to me. everyone this is alex and this is em welcome to the latest episode of the good the bad the basic this is the podcast for tv lovers movie buffs and binge watchers of all ages on this podcast we'll be discussing what we loved what we hated and what's just a bit problematic about the tv and movies that we're addicted to and do a bit of rewriting where necessary. For much more exclusive content, become a show producer on Patreon and get access to after-the-episode outtakes, curated playlists, movie reviews, music video retrospectives, and so much more. Join us at patreon.com forward slash goodbadbasic. On today's episode, we'll be going back to the early 2000s to discuss Fox's sci-fi drama, Dark Angel. This series, set in 2019, is a bit dated now, but was far ahead of its time when it first debuted. Our protagonist, Max, is a bioengineered super soldier who escapes the secret U.S. government facility, Manticore, where she was born, raised, and trained. Ten years later, a 19-year-old Max is trying to keep a low profile while attempting to find the rest of her Manticore siblings. So how did the series fare and what made Dark Angel so intriguing? Stay tuned. All right, everyone. So Dark Angel was science fiction, drama, action, superhero, a series, and it's been recently classified in the cyberpunk subgenre. It was created by James Cameron. Yes, that James Cameron, director of Titanic, and Charles H. Egley. It was released October 3rd, 2000, and aired from that date until May 3rd, 2002 on the Fox Network for two seasons and a total of 43 episodes. The series stars Jessica Alba as Max Guevara, a.k.a. X5-452, and Geneva Locke plays young Max. Max is our protagonist, who is a genetically engineered transgenetic super soldier. It stars Max Weatherly as Logan Kale, a.k.a. Eyes Only, a disabled cyber journalist, Max's friend and later her love interest, John Savage as Colonel Donald Michael Lidecker, one of Manticore's senior officers and season one's main protagonist, Valerie Ray Miller as Cynthia McEachin, a.k.a. Original Cynthia, a.k.a. O.C., Max's best friend and co-worker, J.C. McKenzie as Reagan Ronald, a.k.a. Normal, um, the owner who runs the Jam Pony Express 
courier service where Max and Original Cindy work. Richard Gunn as Calvin Theodore, a.k.a. Sketchy, Max's friend and co-worker. Alimi Ballard as Herbal Thought, who, a Rasta who is also Max's friend and co-worker. William Gregory Lee as Zach, a.k.a. Adam Thompson, a.k.a. Sam, a.k.a. X5-599, Max's unit leader at Manticore. J- Jensen Eccles as Alex McDowell, who is Max's friend and ally. Jensen Eccles also plays Ben, Alex's identical twin, who was Max's breeding partner at Manticore. Kevin Duran as Joshua, an early Manticore experiment with canine DNA. Martin Cummings as Ames White, season two's main protagonist, a government agent. Ashley Barrow as Asha Scott, an S1W member of the Resistance. Um, She's primarily featured in season two. And Jennifer Blanc as Kendra Maybaum, Max's roommate in season one. These are our major players. It seems like a lot of people, but it's actually really not hard to keep track of the characters on Dark Angel because even the supporting characters are consistently utilized, even if in small ways, in a way that we never forget a person. Like they don't introduce people and then transition them out. Um, So it's really cool. Um, This cast of characters is really, really interesting. Um, I want to say insofar as characters... Uh, sexual identity, socioeconomic class, a level of education, the characters on Dark Angel were pretty diverse. Right. It almost seems like this isn't a, like, show from 2000 because because of the diversity on the show. It's actually really interesting. It was doing a lot before its time in general on the show. So... Dark Angel is cool. You were like, you put this on the list and uh, I had never seen it before. I remember I had like seen like promos of it, but I was never like, I never watched it when it was on. What about you? I did watch it. Um, Dark Angel debuted when I was 15 and Jessica Alba was sort of an it girl at that time. She had been on Flipper two years um yeah flipper two years prior it was like a show where she was like uh uh, a supporting character for the first season and she had just got off the indie flick idle hands with devin sawa and so she was being primed for like it girl status 17 magazine teen magazine ym shout out to those who remember those magazines had her all over their covers and so when I saw her in the promos, I'm like, oh, the show seems cool. I'm going to check it out. I didn't know anything really about the show except what the premise was and that Jessica Alba was in it. And I think casting her was a great decision. Word on the street is she beat out over a thousand other young actresses to win this role. And I really think having her be the face of the show generated a lot of the buzz that the show needed, you know, when it was like still in the promo stage and the pilot hadn't aired yet. Jessica Alba was, you know, that girl and every teen girl was watching. Like, I remember all the girls in my class watched that pilot and we were shook. <laughs> right. I do know that, like, Dark Angel was the the show that, like, broke her, broke her. Because, like, after Dark Angel, that's when she, like, really blew up and she was getting thing after thing after thing after thing. This is a really good role. Like, the Uh, The Max character is actually, like, a pretty good character. It's a pretty, at least in season one. I 
don't think she's the strongest actress. And um, apparently James Cameron was not into her. Um, he didn't like think very much of her when she first auditioned. Um, he kept coming back to something intrinsic about her that he felt worked. And I, sure. And then like, yeah, I guess that's it. But I'm not going to lie. I remember watching these first few episodes and I was like, she's like, not that good. But, um, but there is something I think, and we talk about this. There's a, there is an element about her that is like an X or it factor about her specifically in this role that makes sense. So I I don't know that you could have any other actress at the time, like fill this part. I will say, I think it's interesting that, um, you know, Jessica Alba is um, multiracial and it's interesting because I, I remember back in the 2000s, the late nineties, um, people thought that the future would look something like, Jessica Alba. And so when you have a premise where DNA is being spliced and diced to create the perfect human specimen, I don't think looking the way that she does hurt her when it comes, when it came to landing that role. Oh no, absolutely. It's definitely, I think like specific for, for the role. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Although the future does not, and we'll get to this because I have a note about it. It's like, it's interesting that people thought like that would be the future. Like we'd all just look like Jessica Alba, but then people are still racist. So there goes right. your mixed race. People are going to fix racism argument, friends. Um, and it happens in this show and we'll we'll talk about it in a minute. But um, I like this show. I liked it. I actually thought this was really, I thought the show was really, really cool. Um, I thought at least first season, I don't care so much for second season, but um, I really, really loved like first season. And in fact, watching it was kind of hard because it felt like really timely. <laughs> it felt a bit too timely only because, um, the subject matter. So the, the premise is, is like in the year 2019, there is an el- electromagnetic pulse, And this electromagnetic pulse was like some sort of terror attack on the United States. And this pulse wiped, not wiped out every single um, computer and like computer based information. So after the electromagnetic pulse, like the, our system went into economic collapse. Um, This actually happened in 2009 on the show. And then like 10 years later, um, that's where we, we pick up. Oh, okay. So in 10 years, so then in like 2019, we're feeling, we're still feeling the effects of this, of being plunged into, uh, so the United States is like economically collapsed, um, socially, politically, um, they live like under martial law. There's like, there's curfews and sectors and, uh, the it's like a police state, and I was like, "Huh, this feels accurate." Like, just replace, right. you know, just replace uh, electromagnetic pulse with COVID nineteen, and like, I feel like, yeah, this this makes sense to me. Also, really quickly, when Alex says um, economic collapse, uh, hashtag not all. They're still rich people. <laughs> yeah, of course, <laughs> the rich will survive. <laughs> <laughs> like the cockroaches they are. Um moving so on. What hap- so what happens is um 
before the terrorists detonated this electromagnetic pulse into the atmosphere over the U.S., you had Manticore's super soldiers escape there. They escaped. And then the electromagnetic pulse being detonated was actually a blessing in disguise for her because it actually prevented Manticore from finding her. So um, she's just trying to like keep a low profile, stay under the radar and, you know, avoid going back to Manticore, but at the same time, find her siblings there. Right. And that's where we pick up the show. And Max is working as a bike messenger and thief to help make ends meet. Right, right, right. Um, she needs money, not only just to pay her bills, but she again, she's trying to find her family. Her the ex, the group of X fives that she was raised up with at Manicor are really the only family she's got. I I think the series is super interesting for a few reasons. So the series is partly inspired by the manga Alita Alita Battle Angel. I love the manga. As Alex and I discussed, they've tried to you know, adapt this. Everybody and their mama wants Alita Battle Angel to work and it's never going to work, honey. That's all I'm saying. Um, And I think you see more of like, I think that influence in the, in the second season, because it gets weird. Mm -hmm. I mean, that said, the inspiration that they took from Alita for the first season, I think the bits and pieces here and there that they took work. It's enough to make it intriguing and sci-fi and and cyberpunk, but not so much, but but a little enough that it feels like an entirely new show, which does work, at least in season one. Let's just jump into season one really quickly. Season one was 22 episodes. It was on Fox Network at a time where Fox was pretty much a laughing stock when it came to live action series, not because they weren't good, but because Fox could not or would not hold on to them longer than a season, two seasons tops. The rumor is that there was just like a bunch of meddling always like uh, from from the network, from Fox Network into the shows. Lots of meddling, lots of tinkering that would sort of lead to um, Fox's demise, as well as, like, budget issues. And um, speaking of budget, the series premiere of Dark Angel cost over $10 million to produce. Um, Now, James Cameron, if you are familiar with him as a film director, is someone who consistently goes over budget, far over budget, but is always able to release like a huge blockbuster Titanic, Avatar, the Terminator franchise. There's a really long list of movies that were like he blew out of the water. So like there's a method to his madness. But you can't go over budget on a network series and produce the same results. Dark Angel had a large fan base, but not large enough to um, to excuse the huge budget of the show. It just wasn't. Well- <laughs> well, right. So at the time when it was coming out, they Fox had specifically put it in the same time slot as Angel. Angel the series, Joss, you know, of Buffy. And when that happened, uh, people ate it up like gangbusters, right? So you have a lot of critics being like, who's going to win the battle of... And I want to say at the time, Angel had like a Thursday night lineup. Um But, you know, that was sort of, like, what was, like, the critical reception of, like, who's going to win the, like, the Thursday night, like, battle between, is it, will it be Dark Angel or Angel? And that helped. 
with with the buzz of it, but ultimately we know who won. Unfortunately. I mean, girl. And it showed in the numbers. Personally, I was one of those people that stopped watching Angel to watch Dark Angel. Sorry about it. Um, and I, I'm, I, I don't regret that decision to this day. 20 years later, hashtag no regrets. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, the other cool thing about this show is that James Cameron actually directed the series finale, the season two finale. And so James Cameron took the helm. And that was his very first time directing for TV. He's not one of those directors that made the transition from TV to film. He'd always been a film director. Now, the cool thing about Dark Angel, and we said this earlier about it being ahead of its time, Dark Angel was finally recognized in 2016 for being the first American series to have an openly trans actress play a trans character, Louise, who was a woman that Normal was dating um, on a couple episodes in the series. The, the whole episode was really awkward, but... I, I didn't know at the time that the actress was was trans. I didn't know the term transgender when I was 15. And it's cool to know that they actually cast a trans actress for that because trans actresses to this day are still talking about how, you know, they will let um, cis men play trans women, but they won't let, you know, trans women, you know, play themselves. Right. Yeah, that episode is interesting. So normal which is their boss at the bike messenger place. And he's sort of, I don't know, he sucks. He's just like, he's annoying. <laughs> like, um, he's like your typical annoying, like, boss. Granted, they don't ever do what they're supposed to do, so I feel for normal sometimes. But, um... No, they're trash employees, for real, like, for real. <laughs> they, they are. They're terrible employees. Uh, <laughs> but normal, um, ba- normal goes on this date with this trans woman, and then he finds out she's trans, and it gets weird. There is like a weird sort of awkward transphobia that happens. But then, mm-hmm. um, but then he, it, and, but, and actually read it, watching it was like cringy, but it's definitely not the worst representation I've seen. Uh, it's definitely better than what happened on, um, Lost Girl. It's like miles better what happens. But I, I, I actually like I'll let um, Dark Angel have it because it ends up being, you know, he he comes back to this trans woman on like the second date and he has this whole thing about like, I accept you and I don't care. And like, that's your business. And she's like, that's great and everything. But I realized going out with you, I'm a lesbian. <laughs> Right. So then he ultimately gets the brush off, which then gives her the power in their relationship. Like the, the script gives her like her, like her, the power back. So ultimately it it washes. And I, at least in, for that reason, it passes. Like, and honestly, I'm not saying I'm giving the transphobia a pass, but I feel like the reactions were quite realistic to people that maybe never had to grapple with their own transphobia before, where like, I'm going through it, I'm dealing, sitting with my emotions, I'm thinking it over, and then I I can grow and be a better person. And normal has his little growth arc, you know? Um, so that's kind of cool too to see someone move past their their um their transphobic mindset. And not just stay stuck in it, <laughs> Lost Girl. I think the thing I like about it the best is that 
she intentionally tells normal that she was using him as well to like figure out her own shit. You know what I mean? Right. Like I'm going through shit too. I had to see what there was to see. <laughs> see and I realized that like, no, I don't need you and I don't want you like, and I'm good. And I think that more than anything is, um, and I, not more than anything, but that specifically is extremely important. And that's honestly is like, is what's always missing from narratives um, about honestly any marginalized people, uh, in persons like marginalized people aren't like props for you to work out your issues on. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not like their bodies are not like rehab centers for your bigotry. Uh, say that. And so by letting this woman, you know, have her own agency by having her own agency, realizing that she's actually a lesbian maybe doing and then also you know using him back is so important and that's what elevates that specific story it's like you can have problematic aspects but you have to use it to say something and use it to do something and ultimately the storyline does because they use it they use like the transphobia to say okay, you can do all that, but, like, this person is still a person with their own agency who's doing their own shit, and, like, you don't really own them, and they don't really owe you shit. Toxic rhetoric is spewed, but it is it is for the purpose of teaching the audience, if that makes sense. Um, right, right? At the end of the day, he right. does recognize her womanhood. He's like, yeah, you right. are a woman. Like, I, it's me. I'm the problem. <laughs> like, Right. I think having him recognize her womanhood, but her not needing him to in order to feel validated was very empowering. I would go back and look at it. It's actually, it's a really good episode because like that, that storyline, it's, um, it's just smart to watch. But let's talk really briefly about what actually happens in season one. In episode one, she saves this woman from like being sexually assaulted, a woman named Kendra. And like, Kendra's like, girl, come live with me. Um... So we don't really see much of her roommate Kendra, and like the 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 roommate character kind of disappears off the show. Um, but Max, Which she deserved because she ends up fucking a cop, and you know knows better. Mm. Girl, can we talk? With- <laughs> no, no, I'm not gonna talk. I'm not gonna give her the satisfaction. Fact. Yes. Oh, <laughs> um, we don't like it. We're not fucking here for it. But a lot of cool things happen in season one. Um, with the X Fives as Max is trying to find her, her, her family. Um, I really like the relationship between Max and her best friend, Original Cindy, as well. Original Cindy is black, visibly black, awesome, and um, she's also a lesbian. Um, and we don't see those type of relationships either. For some reason, film and TV really like it when lesbians only have lesbian friends or gay male friends. <laughs> right. Um- <laughs> If they assume that, like, I think there's, like, maybe something weird going on there where maybe they assume lesbians just can't have, like, normal female friendships. Like, everything's going to get weird and sexual, but... Or not normal, but specifically friendships with straight women. Straight women, yeah. Yeah, they do that a lot. They assume that lesbians can't have friendships with straight women and that gay men can't have friendships with straight men. Um, I think I think there's a lot of latent homophobia in that idea that if someone's gay, they want to sleep with everyone. Um, anyway, the episode specifically with the trans woman love interest is season one, episode 10. It's called Out. 
It's a really, really great episode. I highly recommend checking it out. And if you have seen it or you're going to see it, specifically if you are trans, um, let us know what your thoughts were on this episode and on that character, Louise. Um, but um, back to the whole of season one, Max is basically trying to find her siblings before Manticore does. And they have... Um, uh, one of their senior officers, Colonel Lidecker, who's like the most intent and the most skilled in hunting them down. He's basically like that um, really creepy military dude that keeps hunting Logan down in the X-Men series. He's that dude. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, so that's, and that's sort of the A plot. So then there's this B plot happening that that's basically where... And this is also set up in, like, the pilot. There's, like, a guy. uh, He's basically anonymous. And he's just talking about the state of uh, the current, of, like, I just, like, the current, um, like, martial law and how we're all living under, like, you know, fascism or something. And he interrupts, like, TV broadcasts to basically be... He's anonymous. He's basically anonymous, like, legitimately. Like, except he has, like all you see are his like eyes and then like things scrolling across the screen. Max finds out who he is and his name is Logan and Max and Logan are working together to try to help track down uh, her, the rest of her siblings with his help. Like she does jobs for him and in return, he sort of keeps the beat and works on finding where these other Manticore siblings might be. Right. So this character goes by eyes only to the public. And the way that he meets Max, I thought was really, really interesting because they meet when she is delivering a package to his penthouse and then goes to steal from him to finance her search for her siblings. And I thought that was a really cute. I mean, listen, it's 2019 and we are in like a basically a post-apocalyptic U.S. That's a meet cute. That's the, <laughs> the cu- that's the cutest me cute that you're going to get. Um, <laughs> he is part of Seattle's elite. He is wealthy. Don't get it twisted. But he's like, he's like a baby class trader. He's not all the way like a class trader because he hasn't given up that money. But he is spilling all this tea on what all these rich people and the military and the police are doing. Right. So one of the interesting things about this show, particularly in season one, is how it looks at what would it be if, like, yeah, in the event of the economic collapse of the United States, right? So right. one, so and how like that, and how that would be. So, so we see like how the working, how people who were maybe, and Max narrates all of this um, on the show. It's all this is all done in her voiceover. But we see these images of people who might have been working poor, like working class and how those people are now like homeless. Right. Um, It's created this huge uh, homeless population and there are like encampments. Right. And not only is there uh, encampment and these encampments obviously um, because of the lack of resources have like high crime. Right. And then they show you, and then we see people like Logan, right who maybe, like, were not affiliated with their family or did not particularly fuck with their family, but because of that money, right, because of that wealth privilege, um, 
are for the most part okay. Like they're they're living in penthouses. Um, they're close enough to see the destruction, but they're not necessarily in it themselves. And then later on in the season, we see um, we meet Logan's family when Logan takes Max to a wedding that he has to attend, and his family is ultra wealthy. Uh, and they are fine. And what's fascinating to me about it in the scene, and not just the scene, but the episode in general, is how they talk about like these huge glaring problems, like the lower class, right, that are in these encampments. Like, like those problems are so far away from them. They're just sort of like, eh, it's a thing that's happening. Like they don't even talk about it. They don't even talk about it because, like, in their mind, like, that idea, it's almost like it's not happening. Like, or it's not happening to them, so it's not, it might as well not be happening. And how they feel a complete lack of urgence to fix the situation. And I loved it because it felt so, because, like, we are going through something similar with, like, COVID really sort of plunging us into chaos, um, it felt so accurate, <laughs> like the a virtual sort of just be like, like I guess. Um, and those who are close enough to see it, but withstand it from family money or if you had like a higher paying job. In that respect, it, it's just been really interesting. It's so interesting to watch from that perspective and and to examine from from there i want to talk a little bit about wait wait hold on i want to before you go on i want to address some things that you just said um i think the only major difference between dark well two major differences between dark angel and what's going on now are um the first is that um dark angel and i got this feeling when i first watched it but i feel it even more on the rewatch is that um you know, like you said, the people that were middle class are like poor now and homeless. It seems on the show, though, that the people that had already been homeless before the terror attack are now like the 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 leaders of that homeless community. Like they have the most experience in navigating that life. Um, and the second thing that I, I thought was really interesting is that nobody uses words like free or freedom in the same context that they do here. Cause we're still under the illusion that despite the over-policing and the military militarization of, you know, of our States and our cities and our counties, um, and the way that people treat protesters and things like that, that we're free. The people on this series don't believe that they know that what they have is whatever their money can buy period. Like they're they're not under the illusion of land of the free and my freedoms and blah 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 blah. Like they know they live in a police state. Everybody knows, <laughs> right? Which is why which is why it's sort of what when there's like that episode where like I think Max is out past curfew, and mm -hmm. a police officer like steals her motorcycle just to do it. It's weird to me that she's like so like why would they do that? Like they have a follow-up scene of like where she's like oh like why would they why would they just be mean to be mean and i'm like max uh hey hon where do you <laughs> live because um yeah mm. the series is very current 2020 meets v for vendetta yeah definitely 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 um it's also cool to see 
and they're because they're talking about stuff that like are now really that's really now just it's really coming of or not coming of age but like coming true like they're these like police hovercrafts that like operate on facial recognition and like everybody like um that monitor the populace and they quell like rebellion and it's it's really fascinating um the show is like really out here doing something prophetic your face could never <laughs> never so okay let's talk about cindy let's talk about let's talk about original cindy so i didn't cindy bugs me like bugs me because i was like why does every line she say use every sort of african-american vernacular english word um that she, that she knows that any like it feels like the writer like uses every single one that they've ever known with every single one of her like lines of dialogue. And then like, she sounds kind of ridiculous. I was like, black people don't talk this way. Like they talk this way, but this still feels like a white person's interpretation of how black people talk. It's overdone. It's overdone. And then I remembered that this series was like, done by Charles Egley, who is who very famously told Orlando Jones that he didn't need black writers because he knows the black experience as a white man. So was he the one that said that? Yeah. That's him. Wow. Okay. It's interesting to deal with someone who thinks that they know the black experience as a whole white man. It's reflected in original Cindy. Like props to him props to the the show and its creators for casting a black woman for not making her disposable for not making her like the handmaiden to the the lead character but you need black writers for black characters and this is a glaring example of why right cindy's dialogue is a huge example of why like it's terrible it's really terrible she sounds ridiculous and it it just like i said it sounds like like a white person who hung around black people once and then was smart. Hey, my Negroes, dead ass on sight. (laughs) 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 And then they use every single word. Cause she talks, she's ridiculous. She's like, and I'm not, (laughs) and she's like, she's like, Hey boo. Hey honey child. I was on the freeway and like, these papas told me that it was popping, so I did the thing. Ain't that true, boo? Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, really quickly, I want to like pour out a few um, a few shots of whatever for the actress Valerie Ray Miller. Like, all all praise and glory to you for saying that shit with a straight face. She said, I mean. Truly, honestly. A professional. Professional. And because it's not that I, (laughs) and it's not like I would be against her, like, having an accent or speaking in AAVE, like, but, like, woo, child. Like, um, it was, no, it was awkward and it was horrible to listen to. Okay, but one of the things I do like about Cindy and what I like about the show, and this speaks to your point about, Black women not being disposable, Max sacrifices her well-being to save Cindy. Right. She doesn't just say Cindy's her best friend. She actually acts like it. (laughs) Right? I was like, (laughs) and I really loved it. So there's an episode uh, where 
Cindy basically finds out that like Max has is is like a super is superhuman, and Cindy is held hostage by these like really nasty super guys. You know they're best friends, so they have this code. When the guy forces Cindy to call Max, uh, you know Cindy you know repeats like their wearing their danger code to her, mm-hmm. and a Max immediately gets it. And she and Max puts her own life at danger because there's this like supercharged, like it's really scary, like nail thing that she puts in the back of her neck that can like really give her like super strength or something. And Mm -hmm. but it can it could like paralyze her and like hurt her. But she puts it in because she knows she has to go save her friend. And she does. She saves her friend. And because that's who's important. And it was like really refreshing to see because I don't think I've ever seen anything like that ever again right when max says original cindy's her bestie she puts herself on the line not just putting her life at risk but also risking being sent back to manticore which is a greater risk as far as she's concerned to get cindy back episode 13 is the one where cindy is taken hostage but it actually really is a testament to how you behave if someone is your friend and you have the power to save them, which Max does. She is a super soldier after all. Right. And um, the friendship, I think, between Max and Cindy, there are parts I think could have been done better, but the parts that are there are are amazing. Um, There is an episode, but the one where they... um, sketchy needs money sketchy's lost a, a lot of money and he need and they need to and he needs to get it back very quickly and max and cindy go to this um they pose as strippers and they go to this underground uh casino like gaming house mm-hmm. and they i mean they pull it in they rake they and they both like uh you know um, with Ma- with the help of Max's powers, they they like get all this cash in one night, and then right. w- and it's such a great sequence. It's super fun. I it speaks so much to um, their friendship. It speaks to who they are as characters, and it's 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 really great, really well done. Um, also, they when they are like winning money, like Trina's the baddest bitch plays under it. Um, right. I think when and, Max is entering the strip club, Hot Girl by Missy is playing, or Hot Boys by Missy is playing. Right. So it's like, <laughs> even then, like, shout out, shout out to, to the show. Yeah. But also, the soundtrack on this show was so, like, it. I was not expecting it. It's Charles Egley, and knowing who Charles Egley is, I kind of did <laughs> right. expect it. I kinda, I, honestly, like, low-key, I did expect it. Um, I just wish there had been more of it, but, you know, I, I, I understand why they didn't have more music. I think it might have taken away from the show a little bit. But, you know, more to adding to your point, I think one of the cool things about Dark Angel is people, do, again, just don't throw the word friend around. Max doesn't just go above and beyond for Cindy. She, um, she later does it for Alec, who started off as, like, a nemesis. Um, she does it for Joshua. Other people on the show do it for her. There's a very, very strong energy of found family here because no one on the the series really has family members at all. Or if they do, it's no one that they're close to. So like they look out for each other always. 
Right, exactly. The main sibling that Max is looking for for season one is Zach, again, who was her best friend and her unit leader back at Manticore. They do find Zach, but in that season one finale, Max gets shot and Zach makes the ultimate sacrifice for her. Again, the theme of family is really strong. Family and sacrifice and inconveniencing yourself for people that you care about is really big. Zach makes the ultimate sacrifice by shooting himself in the head so that um, he can give Max his heart as a donor heart. Because as an as an X5, only another X5 can give her like an organ or a blood transplant. We also meet the first character that Jensen Eccles plays, which is Ben. Ben is out here basically serial killing. <laughs> Not all of the X-Fives turned out to be well-adjusted. And then we later meet Ben's brother, Ben's identical twin, Alec, in season two. One more thing, just from season one, that I think is interesting. There is an episode where there's like a Norman Rockwell painting that has been stolen and it's going to be sold to Singapore. Mm. And Logan is like, we've got to save this Norman Rockwell painting like, how horrible of these thieves to take it. And Max is sort of like, eh, like, whatever. Like, like Max's reaction is just like, she shrugs her shoulders. And Logan is so incensed. He's like, how, how could you just tolerate, like, thieves? Oh, it's because you're a thief. And she Yo, says, his wealthy white man jumped out. Oh, it <laughs> jumped out. <laughs> like, it oh, jumped like- out. And she says something that I find fascinating because I think it highlights the difference, like just the class class difference between them. I think in all of us, it, it, I really liked this episode because I think it was saying something really uh, poignant. I think my only thing of it is that it didn't go far enough. Um, but Max says is that thieving is commerce. Thieving is commerce. Don't take it personally. Um, you know, it's transactional. And I thought it's funny how, like, white people and Americans get worked up. You know, we'll get in how Logan, I, I guess, who is the epitome and the embodiment of this idea, is so incensed that, uh, and he's that a, a piece of American culture, like, an important piece of an American cultural work would be taken and mm-hmm. taken and sold to another country. Um, but, you know, I think about so many important, uh, cultural works of other countries we've taken, right? And I'm sure have been sold to U.S., uh, museums. Um, and I thought, and the show doesn't, the show never explicitly says that. It never, Max never counters with, which I wish she would have, like, Ma- Max never counters with, well, think about all the countries that we took their artwork or whatever. I mean, I give her a pass, a reprieve on that, because Max has literally only been living out here in the world for 10 years. And those 10 years were the 10 years that the U.S. was in disarray from the the terrorist attack, right? Like, there's still so much of what the U.S. was like prior to her escape from Manticore that she does not know. Them kids were not learning about U.S. history up in Manticore. They were learning to, like, kill people. So I get it. Like, I really get it. (laughs) But, like, well, see, I don't. I don't give it a pass because ultimately this is a writing decision, right? It's not, and it's within her character to know those things because, like she said, it's a thief. She's a thief, right? She would know the important things to sell. And it comes up again, 
what happens is uh, they're in the second season when she's chastising, when yeah. she's chastising Alec about his, his thieving, he's like, well, you're a thief too. And she goes, well, I steal from like rich people who suck. And he goes, so that makes it better. And I'm like, uh, duh. Yeah. But so she wouldn't know, she wouldn't make it her business to understand like artifacts and people that have artifacts that are worthy of being stolen. I mean, we see that when she steals from Logan, um, no, no, I'm not saying that she's not aware of the value of the items she's stealing. I'm saying she has no reason to be aware of the U.S.'s history of stealing from other countries, like the, the actual U.S. government. This is actually something that a lot of Americans are very ignorant about. They think that when the U.S. goes to war, they fight the bad guys and they come on home and there's no stealing, no raping, no looting, no exploitation going on whatsoever. This is something that you 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 have to want to find out and you have to dig below the surface to find out. And Max is someone who the show pretty much tells us is not is doesn't have an attachment to material things. She only knows what they mean to on the market like when she goes to sell them and what they mean to specific individuals. I think what bothered me most about Logan's reaction, like, oh, you don't care because you're a thief too, is not the fact that, again, his rich white man jumped out, but the fact that, like, that I, I think what bothered her, and again, I, that might just be me being projecting, is that he cared so much about this painting, which was in at the end of the day, no matter how expensive it was, an inanimate object that people like him had simply projected value upon. And I think that's what bothers me about most people. Seeing this episode again actually really reminded me of when all those celebrities got together to like donate money to the Notre Dame when it caught on fire. But like Notre Dame is an insured property. It's insured by the Vatican. It literally does not need your donations. But during COVID, during a global pandemic, People are losing their homes, they're losing their cars, they're losing their businesses, and their silence. But people are dying, Karen. Where was all this energy y'all had for this fucking building, <laughs> you know? I don't care if it's a landmark. It's a building. <laughs> right. I don't know. I guess... I don't know. It doesn't... I don't... I guess uh, disagree to... Agree to disagree, because I think she would know. Like, maybe she... Even if she herself does not feel... Like, and I agree with that part that she doesn't feel sort of attachment to material things. Um, she would have a basic understanding if, if, even if it was only like, well, if, even if it was, even if it was something as nonchalant as like, well, we, people steal artifacts from their countries and bring it here. Like, what does it matter if that normal Rockwell painting goes to Singapore? Like, even if it was just something as shrug your shoulders as that, she would have like a mind. I think her, like her mind would at least take her to that place because she herself said it's all just, it's just, it's commerce. It's transactional. It doesn't matter. And I do agree it's a fault of the writing. I think there's certain things that she should know. And the way that the show chooses to remind us that she's naive are not ways that actually fit into her character, which is someone who's very street smart. Right. So so there's that. Yeah. So season one, what's what's up with season one? I thought season one was fucking epic. Like, it's really good. I do. I think 
Sam, I'm going to put season one at a solid good. Um, I like a lot of, I like a lot of what's happening on this show. I think it's very interesting. I love these. I really love her, her friends and coworkers. (laughs) I think they're really funny. What an array of characters. And like, you know, this is a small thing, but I like how they have like the, the character with like the dreadlocks is actually a Rasta and not just like a caricature of what they think black men who are poor are supposed to look like. Yeah. He's a Rasta and he doesn't, he doesn't even have locks. Right. Um, right. So, which I'm sure is because he's trying to, you know, cause he has this job, right. He's, he's working. There's still right. a certain amount of assimilation that has to happen. That accent is horrible, but um, I take it. Uh, I mean, it's not worse than Bianca Lawson's accent when she was Kendra on Buffy. It's, it's not like, worse than that. It's like two steps up from that. Um uh so that's so that really needed more Jamaican actors. That's what we're saying. Y'all needed more I'm Jamaicans saying. on TV um, back in the day. Y'all love Jamaican characters, hire Jamaican people. It's not hard. Jamaicans act too. Um so season um two starts off with Max being a prisoner of Manticore once again. And she plans an escape with Alec, who's Ben's identical twin. And a an earlier Manticore experiment, this basically human-canine hybrid experimental creature named Joshua. Joshua's such a deeply interesting character. And Lidecker kind of shifts gears. He's betrayed by his superior, and so he kind of gets on the winning team, kind of, sort of. Uh, on season two, which is interesting. You know, they make it out, but Alec is recaptured in episode three. And Joshua begins hunting for his father. Joshua is an interesting character because I feel like he was heavily influenced by the character of Frankenstein's monster from the novel Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. You know, you have this creature who's an experiment, doesn't fit into the world. He doesn't look human in the way that the X-Fives do. And he feels abandoned and he wants his father. He wants the person who created him to tell him about himself. Very Frankenstein's monster vibes all up and through the Joshua character. Right. Um, Yeah, so season two is where this show takes a very different turn. At least for me personally, it... There some some of these more interesting themes to me get lost in favor of like Manticore and these sort of supernatural Buffy esque looking uh, quote unquote experiments that come out of there. In fact, it feels more like uh, I de- it definitely turns season two turns into a supernatural show, which is interesting because apparently like. Fox is ready to be done with the show after season one. And they barely got a season two. They just got a season two. And then um, the network was instrumental in this, this big shift of the show. So, so that's, so that's interesting to look at. Yeah. um, The show was never actually classified as a supernatural and I get it. Because they kept on emphasizing all these people, all these strange creatures, their experiments. They're, they were created in a laboratory. A 
only kind of dips its toe in the supernatural waters with the um, introduction of the blood cult. Mm. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, like Alex said, it, it really does fall off. And for me, it's not because of all these manicure creatures coming out of the woodwork, but specifically because of the blood cult. Um, and which I thought was completely unnecessary because um, it it kind of, I guess the closest thing to what the blood cult does would be what the mountain people do on the, the 100, um, the CW series, for those who watch that. It's kind of like that. Um, I thought that this was an unnecessary storyline. Now, Charles Egley has gone on to say that he had planned for season three to throw to combine the storylines of season one and two and sort of merge them together. So this is what he had to say. And this is a direct quote. What was supposed to happen in season three was that um, you were supposed to combine the elements of season one, Manticore, the genetic testing, and the elements of season two, the blood virus, the blood cult, this, that, and the third. And um, basically, they took us back. Um, in the unproduced season, what was supposed to happen was that they were supposed to show that a thousand years ago, Earth passed through a comet's tail, which deposited viral material on the planet and killed 97% of the human race. Then the breeding cult, the blood cult, um, preserved the survivor's genetic immunity so that when the comet returned, only members of the cult would survive. Then Sandman, a cult member and Max's creator, he betrayed the cult and decided to give the genetic immunity to the rest of humanity through Max, who would be the savior of the human race. Um, again, this is another borrowing of the Alita Battle Angel narrative. Now, there are multiple ideas on how to spread Max's immunity, um, this, that, and the third, but apparently that's how it was supposed to be. And the storyline is actually expounded upon in the Dark Angel novel, the Dark Angel and After the Dark when the comet returns and nobody falls ill. Um, so yeah, that's what was supposed to happen. Season two wasn't them fault going off track, but simply trying to do too much. <laughs> so y'all can't see my face right now, but if you could. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> um, I think that makes it worse, honestly, that they didn't go off the rails, that this was actually that this chaos of season two was actually planned is really awkward to me. <laughs> Like I said, everybody everybody always thinks they're going to be the one to make Alita Battle Angel work. Everybody. Everybody. It is the holy grail of adaptation properties. Everybody thinks, like, this is it. It's my time. I'm about to kill it. And then what happens? Nah. Um, I mean, Dark Angel left a great legacy. It was released as a video game for PS2 on November 18, 2002. They released three novels, two sequels, and one prequel. Um, which were written between 2002 and 2003 by Max Allen Collins. There was a companion book also called Dark Angel, The Eyes Only Dossier, which was written by D.A. Stern. So this show had a lot of buzz, and it did have a sort of cult following and fandom around it. But again, so many things that the show tried to do, particularly in season two, do not translate as well to the medium of television as they would do a comic 
or, you know, a novel. They just don't. <laughs> right. Let's talk. So let's talk about this for a minute. Adaptations are hard. It's why people win Oscars for them. Because the whole point is that you're having to get the the essence of a novel, which has more pages, more descriptions, more time basically to build and create this world, than you do a television show or a film, which has significantly less time. And in a novel, what is could be 10 pages of description uh, in a show you've got like 15 seconds at, at most right mm-hmm. to to match those 10 pages and that's what makes it hard there are some properties y'all that just don't need to be adapted they just can't be and that's fine we all need right. to live with that take that in and then let that go now in their defense um, like I said, it was inspired by Battle Angel, but the, so many of these, yes, the saving humanity, the savior of humanity, yes, that is like Alita inspired, but the gen- the genetic breeding, the breeding cult, the blood cult, that is very particular to this show. But I think there's something to be said for understanding that this is not the time to write a novel. And they were really trying to write a novel, like an epic novel in the first, in the second season. This is an epic. This is something that goes on and on and on and on and on. Unless you have HBO money, unless you have Game of Thrones clout, that is not a good idea. Right. And then I, and I would even, you know, pose that in those properties, you know, Game of Thrones is never trying to like introduce aliens. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's 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 so much going on there. I get like I'm not even again, I'm not even mad at all these Manticore experiments, prior experiments, you know, before the X5s that roll through. I assume that they've been experimenting for decades. Mm-hmm. So, okay, cool. But now you got like comets and like aliens and there's a cult. Like it's so much. It's so much. I will say though that. Jessica Alba really, for me, shines in season two. I think one of the reasons why a lot of her movies don't do well when she's in a main role is because I think she's one of those actresses that needs time to get comfortable with a character and make it her own. Time that you don't have when you're producing a film. What I've seen on her on Dark Angel and what I saw of her on Flipper, I was really impressed with. Um, The Max character really, really felt like her um, to the point where... By season two, I couldn't imagine anyone else playing Max. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that I feel the same way. I don't think she... It's And mostly it's because she's... I think the Max part, like the character is well-written. Mm-hmm. And I think that does a lot of... Um, I think that... Not a lot of lifting, but I think that helps her, certainly. But she's not a strong actress. Like, and I, and and although like I wouldn't know who at the who at that time, like in that period, I couldn't think of somebody better uh, to play her to play Max. I'm sure that there was somebody out there. But um, I do like Jessica Alba. I don't. I haven't seen because she. I haven't seen. Um, I haven't seen what she's been in lately. Like I know she's on LA's Finest with Gabrielle Union. I've just not bothered to watch it yet but i'm sure she's grown i'm sure she's like done but but also like she knows she doesn't want to be an actress anymore 
she did LA's finest just for Gabrielle, but like she has her own like company now and she transitioned cause she saw, she knew what was up and she's like a, a great like business owner and she's making, she's like making racks off of that. The honest company is really thriving. Like she found her niche. Um, a lot of people need to find their niche if we're being very honest. Um, um, a lot of people think that their acting careers are going to last longer than they do. Um, especially when you are a beautiful young woman and Jessica Alba is still really beautiful and and still young and looks even younger than she is. But I think she knew very early on that Hollywood does and can and does dispose of actresses, no matter how young, no matter how beautiful. And you won't be that young forever. And so she definitely invested in her beauty and her clout and, you know, um, in her acting in those early years and then built this company completely separate from that industry. And I think that was a very, very, very smart. No, it's extremely smart. And I commend her for it. Um, cause she did what a lot of girls can't do. And she flipped it. Right. Um, you gotta flip it. You have you to always, uh, because what you, cause yeah, like if you're not talented, if you're not like a good actress, if you don't have any like real acting chops, once mm-hmm. you turn 35, it's over. Mm-hmm. Like, and I even feel then like, you could be great and it would still be over. <laughs> oh, I was like, I think actresses who are like really good actresses, like, like real. And I'm not talking about like, Oh, Chris McCarpenter was like a good actress. I'm talking about like, if you're like, um, like if you're top tier, like if you, if you have some award considerations under your belt, I think though, like, or if you could be, um, the, I think those girls go on and have, I think though, and I mean, women and they go on to have like really decent careers forever. But like, um, if you're like an ingenue and you're not like talented and then you get over a certain age, nah, like you better flip it. Right. I mean, and what I've noticed is the, the rampant misogyny in Hollywood in the way that they treat age and, and the ageism that's directed specifically and only at women, you can be as talented as you want to be. But if you get to 35 and you don't look at least five years younger, at least it's over for you, honey. I'm sorry. Looking old is really the worst thing that could happen to a woman in Hollywood. They will let a man get old and they will let a man get fat, but you not you, sis. Like Morgan Freeman started acting when he was 50. They don't, a woman does not have that privilege and you can be as talented as Morgan Freeman, but no one's really going to take you seriously and turn you into, uh, you know, a, a real household name and a character actor starting your See, career at 50, sis. <laughs> like, is, is that, because, like, Helen Mirren, uh, M- 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 Meryl Streep, Julianne Moore now looks old. Like, Julianne Moore right, right. now looks her age. She gets roles. Julianne this Moore This is what works. I noticed with both of these, with all of the actors you name. They all started when they were really young. They were really hot. They showed that they were hot. They hit their 30s. And they, quote, focused on their families, probably not getting hired. I'm just saying it, that's what it is. Then at 40, they got cast again to start playing wives and mothers before they could start playing anything else again. Like, there's there's a blueprint to this. I see this. Like, that's what it is. If you are between 30 and 40, you're probably not going to be cast um for a while um, to play a single woman or the love interest or the object of desire, you get that in your 20s and then 
come 40s, you're playing someone's wife or ex-wife or mom. I, I do believe that there is a tenant there of like, if you are talented, you will continue to work. If you are not, like, you are disposed of completely. Uh, is that, like, because that is that is real. Like, I can think of a lot of actresses who got older and but were really talented and they all still work. You know, obviously there's a problem in general with like the way women's roles are written, but oh, um, of that season two of Dark Angel, especially knowing what season three was going to be. What do you think of that season and its cast of of starring characters and recurring characters and the Joshua storyline and the breeding cult? Hmm? I don't fuck with it. <laughs> like, um, it's like basic to me. Yeah, I mean. I'm going to give it like, I'm going to give it a basic plus. A lot of elements were basic because, again, they're doing too much. Like, I'm glad to know that you guys had a direction. Yay for that. But you're doing entirely too much. That could have been split into two seasons itself if you really wanted to incorporate all of this information. And then you could have tied it up in season four. Um, But there was just so much, I feel, polluting the core message I did like seeing all the Manticore early experiments. I did like the continuation of these friendships. I did like um, ha- us having a new protagonist and Lie Decker getting on the side of good. Like, and I enjoyed all of like the heavy cyberpunk and um, the heavy emphasis on genetic experimentation, heavier that we got in season two. But it was just too much to digest and yes season two had 21 episodes and it was still too much yeah you know i think my thing ultimately was like i felt like i was watching a different show (laughs) like um which i don't like that's always like super jarring and maybe that should have been maybe that what they planned for season three like that information should have been sprinkled in season one to try to make season two make more sense you understand what i'm saying right but like ultimately (laughs) But, and even then it's like, ultimately I think it kind of gets in the way. Like also the, my big, my big rule, like you either have aliens or you have like in magic or you have science, both cannot exist in the same universe. Like you either want science or you want magic. You got to pick one. You just got to pick one. I don't know what to <laughs> tell <away>. you. <laughs> like... <laughs> runaways like i just please 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 um i think a lot of people think they have to do a lot in order to keep their show interesting but if again if you can just find your niche and work that niche and make it the best it can be you can have a hit show the aaron sorkin model works the julie pleck model works the amy sherman paladino model works the shonda rhimes model work works <laughs> like just just do that be that live that and i think there are plenty of ways they could have done that without expanding this blood cult manticore thing like i i think i wanted more to see like these other siblings and how they were adjusting i think they could have been like integrated better i, I wanted to see that. more of these these core found family i would have liked them to like be more integrated into Max's real life and have them band together to support her. That would have been nice. I would have liked more of like the, the, the ramifications or the repercussions of like living under like this martial law police state, like all of that is stuff that they could have just kept using instead of, you know, 
the blood cult, which was ridiculous. Yeah. And of course, we would have liked Original Cindy to speak like a black girl and not like 15 black girls from different regions of (laughs) the U.S. Of the U.S. That was a mess. I give them props for for attempting to shoot for the stars in season one, but it was too much. It was simply too much to digest. But I do. But overall, I do like it. I think there are a lot of great elements to this show. I love um, the things that I love about this show. I really do love I think if somebody wanted to run with a similar concept of season one, I would rewatch it. Alex cannot overstate how poignant season one is to watch in 2020. It really is. It really, the only thing that gives it away is like, it's clearly like, there's like the fashion and like just the whole general look of the show. But like, it really feels poignant to watch right now. This is everything that we think made Dark Angel good, bad, basic, and innovative. Dark Angel isn't currently streaming, but if you were fortunate to watch this series when it was new, please let us know your thoughts on this series via our Twitter or Instagram. If you're a GBB patron on our top two tiers, be sure to check out our Dark Angel Spotify playlist. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Good, The Bad, The Basic, be sure to share it with your friends. Tune in next week when we'll be discussing the first three seasons of MTV's hit sci-fi teen drama, Teen Wolf. This series is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. If you'd like to check it out to refresh your memory. Follow The Good, The Bad, The Basic on all major podcast platforms to listen to our regular weekly episodes on the go. Leave us a review on your preferred platform and share our weekly episodes on your social media. Please follow us at The Good, Bad, Basic on Twitter and at Good, Bad, Basic Pod on Instagram to get in on our daily content. Also, be sure to follow our SoundCloud page, The Good, The Bad, The Basic, where all our episodes drop first. If you love this sort of content and want more, become a show producer and patron on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash goodbadbasic. Your support allows us to keep bringing you our regular weekly episodes as well as exclusive bonus material. Until next time, bye everyone. I'm <laughs> sorry.